Welcome to the Lead and Follow podcast. I'm your host, Sharna Fabiano, author of the book, Lead and Follow. And I'm pleased to bring you the latest research, insights, and educational techniques in the emerging field of followership to help you connect and collaborate better with the people around you, whether you're leading or following. Please do leave us a review in your favorite podcast app, and thanks so much for listening. My guest today is Daniel Burkholder. Daniel and I actually met many years ago when we both lived and danced in Washington, D.C., and I've followed his work with admiration ever since then, so it's really a pleasure for me to reconnect with him here on the podcast and have him share his experience of leading and following through some of the movement modalities that he specializes in. I'll share a little more about him first, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Daniel choreographs, improvises, performs, teaches dance and the Feldenkrais Method, and practices mindfulness. His choreographic improvisational work spans theatrical performances, site-specific events, immersive media, and screen dance, and has been presented at numerous venues throughout North America and internationally. His current work includes On Site, a series of embodied screen dance experiments. Embodied Truth, Finding Ways to Move Together, a collaboration with Kamani Fowlin, examining race and gender through the lens of parenting. And Act React, a podcast exploring improvisation through conversations with remarkable artists. His work has been commissioned by the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, James Madison University, and Goucher College, among others. Daniel is currently an associate professor of dance at University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee and the director of the MFA in Dance program. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Erna, for having me today. You're so welcome. You know, I have such a clear memory of you performing in D.C. I was trying to remember where. I, I think maybe it was the Kennedy Center um, or some, one of the city festivals. I can't remember, but uh, it, it just makes it all the more fun to be doing this now. And so, uh, yeah, thank you again for being here. But I, I want to start by just asking you to share briefly how you found your way into dance and maybe into improvisation in particular. Sure. Um, I started dancing, taking dance classes when I was nine years old. So I started pretty young, especially for a guy growing up in the Midwest. And it really was, we had moved to a new town and my parents wanted to start me doing some like little league or peewee football or something like that. But the community <laughs> we were in was, was growing so fast that they didn't have enough teams for all the kids. Wow. So, so thinking they just needed me to do something like with coordination to, to help me become mm -hmm. more coordinated. They um, found a, a little, you know, jazz class for boys. It was a jazz class for boys taught by a male instructor. And I started. Uh, my, my parents were dancers. They were ballroom dancers, actually. They, they, they competed in the 70s. Wow. Kind of pro-am pro stuff, like amateur stuff. Yeah, not, fun, not, fun. Not choreographed stuff, but it was like, okay, you're going to do the foxtrot and, you know, you're with this partner and go. And, right. <laughs> um, you know, my dad actually won a, like a national bronze medal in, I forget which form or something at one point. <laughs> and um, so like dancing, and actually my dad's parents were also avid square dancers. And, fun, wow. And once they retired, they were square dancing three, four, five times a week. And so I say I come from a lineage of men who danced. Yeah, yeah. And so when I started dancing at nine, it was not an, an unusual thing. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, the kind of dancing I was doing was very different than social dances, doing jazz and tap mm-hmm. and eventually ballet. But it just was a, a natural kind of evolution in a way. So that's really when I started. And then I just, you know, kept dancing through high school and then in college. Mm-hmm. And and really, it was after college where I started uh, improvising and doing mm-hmm. more improvisational work. And it was really kind of in my mid to late 20s that that became more and more part of my practice. Mm-hmm. And mainly it was... For two reasons. One is because I felt like when I was improving, I was most fully myself on stage. Mm -hmm. There wasn't this kind of barrier of trying to remember the choreography. Yeah. And then also I just realized that my life didn't feel very choreographed. Mm. And I wanted kind of the the form in which I was making work to reflect the way that I felt I was like living my life, which felt a little more kind of off the cup, improvisational stuff like that. So that's really how it became more and more embedded in my creative work. Thank you so much for sharing that. I am particularly drawn to your comment about wanting your creative work to reflect the way that you were living your life. Because I think for me, my my experience with improvisational forms has always been that they kind of hold a mirror up to my life. And I have this dual relationship with them where they're both informed by the events of my life and they also inform the events of my life at the same time. I want to ask you about one of the movement forms you practice, contact improvisation. That interests me because I'm interested in the kind of relationship of leading and following. And Maybe just before we jump into that, uh, for listeners, could you give a, a, a little description of that form and maybe the place it has in your own work? Yeah, so contact improvisation is a, f- is a movement practice dance form that de- started in the early 70s. Um, it was initiated by Steve Paxton, who was a dancer choreographer, and then later carried on developed by many dancers and practitioners. And at that time... Steve was also studying some martial arts, specifically Aikido, and was Mm -hmm. interested in some of the skills that they were using in Aikido and how to apply them, say, in a non-martial context, Mm -hmm. in a cooperative context. Mm -hmm. And so he started working with momentum, with rolling, with kind of using touch as a way of communicating what was happening. Mm -hmm. And it eventually evolved to be this social form um, and also a performance form. It kind of does both Mm -hmm. that basically starts with two people coming into contact one another, Mm -hmm. sensing and feeling the shared weight and then following that single point of contact. And it, it's a little hard. It's one of those things that's a little hard to explain. You have to see it, but (laughs) you know, it looks a little like, I mean, I think like partner yoga, mm-hmm. if people are familiar with that, that could be a way in. It also looks so it can look like wrestling. It can mm-hmm. also look like little kids rolling around on the floor together. Um, mm-hmm. It can also look like something that Cirque du Soleil might do. Um, mm-hmm. And I know actually for one of their shows, they studied contact improvisation as a base to, to develop nice. work. And so it's it's a combination of all those. It can be incredibly athletic. It can mm-hmm. also be really subtle and quiet. Um, and intimate, not necessarily mm-hmm. in a like an intimate meaning like in a sexual way, but just intimate in kind of like really attuning to another person. Mm-hmm. There is no set moves to learn. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you learn vocabulary, but that's only to learn concepts to apply. 
So mm-hmm. there's, it can, and anything is evolving in the moment. There's also not any kind of parameters around who dances with who. Mm-hmm. So there's not like a, like a lead and follow role in that right. traditional sense of male and female. You can dance with anyone from, you know, genders to size to age. It's all kind of available to explore within the form. And usually it's a duet form, but it also can, um, certainly there can be trios that mm-hmm. can be involved. And once it gets bigger than that, it gets a little more complicated in terms of just the dynamics and physics of it all. But um, usually it's a duet form. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to put a couple links also in the show notes if uh, listeners would like to see some examples. I've, I've studied this to some extent, not, you know, not to the extent that you have. And so just hearing your description reminds me um, of the felt sense of it, which, you know, I think is one thing about dance that is a little bit hard to translate into words, but there's so much wisdom there. And so I, I'd love for you to maybe to speak a little about your felt sense of of practicing this. And I know there isn't, you know, lead and follow roles that kind of in the traditional sense, but I wonder if you have any experience, you know, as you're practicing of either following or or leading, or do these these just not kind of make sense in in that frame? No, I think th- I think it does make sense. And I think it's a mm-hmm an issue or a opportunity that ex- that explored quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the focus is actually on following, mm-hmm. not leading. And I do this one exercise that I, I didn't make up. Um, I, mm-hmm. I've learned from many different people where you kind of just touch your fingers together mm-hmm. and you try to kind of, without kind of collapsing in any way, just relax and to tune into that touch with the other person and wait till you feel their finger moving and mm-hmm. then to follow that action. Mm-hmm. So if their, their finger moves a little to the left, you just like follow it to the left. It goes up or down. And the idea is that both people are tuning to one another and following the other person. Beautiful. And, and at first it seems like nothing can happen. Mm-hmm. But if you really slow down and attune and be sensitive to just the smallest movements, Mm -hmm. soon you are traveling all over the room, changing levels, shifting. Mm -hmm. um, Because in the act of following, there's an act of kind of generosity that Mm -hmm. evolves and, and so much is possible. Now, in the, you know, in the actual dance, when you're, when you're dancing with someone, of course, there's times that you feel that you may be leading or making a choice or resisting following because you have your own desires that come up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone wants to move really fast and you're like, oh, that doesn't feel like where I want to be right now, mm-hmm. you know, you're making choices within that or vice versa. So, but in general, my experience and the mm-hmm. way I like approaching it is like, can you let go of this desire to be in charge or to lead or to dictate? And can can you follow the dance? It's almost like the point of contact mm-hmm. is a third entity that mm-hmm. is where the dance happens. Beautiful. Beautiful. I just want to emphasize a couple of things you said there. They're just really crystallized for me, the experience. One is the willingness to let go and follow and how that you know, as you kind of put yourself in that mode over and over again, seems to lead to discovery, right? That that is sort of the the portal, so to speak, in this form into discovering a position, a movement, a dynamic, uh, an experience that you, you couldn't have predicted and you couldn't have planned. So that I, I just really want to highlight that. I think it's really translatable 
into other areas, even in the sense of having a simple conversation with someone where you're letting go of your expectations um, rather than planning what you're going to say, you know, you're listening and kind of seeing what comes up. And then I also love how you, and I'm not sure if, if, if you want to expand on this, how you kind of connected leading to making a choice, like uh, a choice that was connected to a personal desire. Maybe, you know, maybe it's even safety, you know, or something you need at the moment. Um, I wonder if you wanted to speak a little more about the experience of leading when it happens. Yeah, the the times that I feel like that I'm making a choice within the contact improvisation dance is when I'm feeling like the dance is not serving where I am in the present moment. And so often I will choose to slow down or diminish how much I'm following this like third point of the dance and just say, you know, without saying anything, though sometimes I say something, but but often without saying anything is like, this is what I need in this moment, right? Again, like if the person's wanting to like do lots of lifts and, and throw each other in the air and, and for whatever reason, that's not where I'm at, whether physically I'm not energized that way, mm-hmm. whether I'm I'm not sure if I completely trust them yet. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about trust too in this, in this context yeah, as well. Yeah. But so I will kind of, put some more constraints on what we're doing from my Mm -hmm. end. And I'll still try to be fully present with what's happening, but that's also knowing where you are personally and what you want or can handle in the moment. And so sometimes you'll just exert a little bit control to take care of yourself Mm -hmm. so that then you can be present with the dance, not to, not to separate, but to then be able to more fully engage And, you know, sometimes that's also true when you're dancing with someone who's newer to contact improvisation Mm -hmm. and they need more support. So you're you're offering a little bit more information of like, oh, let's here. I'm going to I'm going to kind of give a little bit more than just Mm -hmm. following. I'm going to lead a little bit to give them an experience to go into the form more deeply. Mm. So I think there's a number of contexts in which you can kind of offer where you're at or what might be possible between the two of you. Beautiful. I also just really appreciate how you described the the dance being like the third partner or the the leader at, at times and how these choices are serving the dance. I think that's another really translatable thing, you know, thinking about uh, any sort of work context or even personal relationship context where when choice is aligned with care for the relationship or you know, care for the self in the relationship, things tend to go well. You know, that's generally a good thing that we want to strive for, but we sometimes forget that we have the choice and such a great lesson there. You also practice Feldenkrais, which is also kind of multifaceted and sometimes hard to describe. Maybe speak a little about that for listeners, you know, so they're oriented. And um, I'd love to hear you speak about the relationship between the practitioner, the client there in terms of lead and follow. Yeah, so the Feldenkrais method, <clears throat> really briefly, it's it's one of these things that again, like, is I could yeah. talk about a long time and kind of get a little esoteric. But on the on the ground base, uh, the Feldenkrais method is a somatic based method, so body based method that focuses on developing greater awareness and efficiency in how we use our bodies. And that can be translated in a lot of ways. Um, there's two ways that I that I interact with people. One is one-on-one. The, the student is lying on a table, most likely, and I'm gently touching and moving them. 
in ways, again, to bring greater awareness, to let go of unnecessary tension or effort in the body, to lead them through specific Mm -hmm. movement patterns that might bring greater efficiency Mm -hmm. or connection in the body. And then the second is in group classes, where I'm doing very similar Mm -hmm. things, but instead of touching them, I'm using words to describe movements that Mm -hmm. they would go through on their own. And these movements tend to be very simple, Mm -hmm. but unusual or unusual combination of movements to kind of bring awareness to how certain ways we might be habitually using our bodies and then to find Mm -hmm. new possibilities. It's such a beautiful form. I had some experience with it myself. And one thing I remember is that I'm just surprised always how the simplicity, but as you say, sort of unusual combinations, you know, shift things. Perhaps particularly in the one-to-one format of Feldenkrais, do you experience yourself there leading or following or both? Or what do you experience the relationship there as? (laughs) It's such a great question in that, yes, there is a more sense of leading, but it's through following the cues that I'm getting from the person right that I'm working with. <laughs> I love that it's answer. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's lead by following. You know, yeah. It's oh, great. 100%. Yeah. Because often people mm-hmm. come to a Feldenkrais practitioner mm-hmm. because they're in some kind of discomfort. Mm-hmm. So they have something. They have neck and shoulder discomfort. They mm-hmm. have a hip thing. They have lower back something. So you're looking at them. And looking for patterns, movement patterns and holding patterns that may be contributing to this discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so once you get an inkling of something, right, you have an idea, you have a question like, oh, I notice when they're walking, their right side of their pelvis is moving a lot more than their left side of their pelvis. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about lower back pain. Mm -hmm. Let's explore that. Let's investigate that. And it definitely is a practice of asking questions, Mm -hmm. trying things and seeing what happens and seeing what questions then arise from that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like someone says, oh, I have a lower back pain. And you look at your little manual and say, for lower back pain, we have to strengthen the core and blah, 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 like these checklists. Right. Right. (laughs) Not a formula. Yeah, it's not a formula in any ways. And I know like when you go through the training, that can be really challenging because you want those easy answers. And they're just like, there's not easy. If we're if we're looking at the true complexity of a human being, you can't work off of a checklist, even in something like lower back pain. Right. And because it, it may be caused. Yeah, sure. Maybe they're their core is not stabilizing them, but also maybe they had a knee injury years ago and they learned to compensate and that pattern is now ingrained, which Mm -hmm. maybe it served them at some point, but now is causing this pain. So we need to go back and readdress that. Um, It could be that they're holding their head in a funny way that then puts pressure. There's so many ways that it can manifest itself. So, so I start, that way. And as I start working with someone, even if I'm gently moving them, Mm -hmm. every time I move them, I'm getting new information. And like, it's like, oh, no, their, I don't know, their leg likes to tilt this way and Mm -hmm. not that way. That tells me the next thing to try. Mm -hmm. And so it's this continually unfolding of following what their body is telling me to then help them maybe discover something about themselves. And in that discovery, there is an opportunity for something new to happen. 
Beautifully said. Thank you. I'll also point listeners here to a previous episode with Aran McGinn, in which we talk about how in order to lead well, we actually first need to follow. And although it sounds at first like a paradox, I think I'm hearing something similar from you here in the context of Feldenkrais. Please correct me if I'm not getting it right. But where you're saying that even though you are formally the leader, meaning the practitioner right in the relationship, it's your ability to listen or follow, even as you're leading, that is what makes you successful, meaning like makes you able to to serve your client. And that for me, of course, sounds like improvisation. You know, I, I use the terms leading and following to, to describe improvisation, but I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Often, Feldenkrais is described as an improvisational practice. Mm. So, um, and certainly that's the way I think of it. You have these Mm -hmm. structures, you know, that you understand that you maybe even some, um, series of movements that you may bring in with someone, but in the moment, you're always letting that improvisation evolve and shift, um, Begin because it's not a formula. Mm-hmm. You you think you're going to do this one movement, and as they're doing it, you notice, oh, weird. I asked them to move their hip, but they're doing something funny with their ribs, mm-hmm. or unexpected with their ribs. Yeah, and so then I need to kind of shift my attention there, right? If mm-hmm. I just come through with this like hard laid out plan, mm-hmm. I miss an opportunity to really see what's happening in the moment mm-hmm. and the 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 possibilities within that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so important. So important. You'd mentioned earlier the role of trust and when we were talking about contact improvisation, but I imagine it's here as well in in the improvised Feldenkrais relationship. Um, I wonder what what you think trust has to do with leading and following or the reverse, right? Like what's the interplay there or how does trust happen? Yeah, I mean, I think in both of these forms... I'll just speak specifically about these forms first, and maybe maybe it can we can branch it out. But in both of these forms, there's touch that's happening between two people. Mm-hmm. Physical contact is happening, and so for, for that to happen, there needs to be an understanding of the like the framework around the practice. Mm-hmm. And that it is going to fall within side the nature of these practices so that everyone can feel comfortable to allow the practices to flourish. Mm-hmm. Right. If yeah. there's any kind of question about the nature of the touch, mm-hmm. then it becomes problematic. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is probably true in almost any contact where touch is happening Mm -hmm. that is not, say, competitive, Mm -hmm. right? Like in a wrestling match, maybe they don't have to worry in the same way Mm -hmm. as, you know, or a boxing match, right? (laughs) That that touch is a little different. But the kind of touch that we're talking about, there's a a built-in intimacy, Mm -hmm. again, uh, to it, and you want to keep it within the framework. And so I think understanding those those parameters is really important. Mm -hmm. And by being really clear about that, that allows so much to happen through touch because touch is of course, one of the most powerful things that we have Mm -hmm. as humans. People become sick because of lack of touch and depressed because lack of touch. So I think there's something really powerful with these practices of touch. 
And so the trust is that I'm going to enter into this dance or into this relationship in Feldenkrais where we're going to be engaging one another with a goal that is supportive, that helps both of us kind of flourish, that opens up new possibilities for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even when I'm, when I'm the practitioner working with a student in Feldenkrais, if, if it's a good session, Mm -hmm. I feel better in my body as well as they feel better in their body. Mm. Like if I, if I feel like I'm more stuck or a little more constrained, I can be pretty sure that the session wasn't as powerful or as useful to them as it could have been. Mm. Fascinating. What are are you doing to, as the practitioner or as the, you know, the leader to facilitate the the useful session, right? Or to put yourself in the state where healing can happen, where, you know, good things can happen, um, where the, you know, the touch is well-bounded. What what actually is the, I don't know if you're aware of what, what you're doing or, or deciding or thinking internally or externally? Yeah, so... Say it's the first session with someone, mm-hmm. I'm definitely really describing very clearly what's mm-hmm. going to happen. You know, you're going to lie down on the table. Mm-hmm. I'm going to touch you in these ways. I'm going to be moving you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if anything feels uncomfortable or it's, uh, you know, you want me to stop what I'm doing, just say something. You mm-hmm. know, so first I'm vocalizing yeah. some really clear, clear parameters. But then when I'm actually in the practice, the thing that I'm doing, I think that's most important is not hurrying, mm. is not rushing um, because, and I'm not forcing, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, it's the, the practice is not like, I don't know, like trying to like stretch someone out and like pull them and like, oh, we got to get this unstuck. So I'm forcing right, them to do right. it. The, the practice is the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. It's like, I may... I don't know, I may gently pull their arm across their body, mm-hmm. but I only go as far as what feels easy. Mm-hmm. And then I'll notice if when I get to that place, when it's when the quality of the movement changes, mm-hmm. I speak of it often as like a little speed bump, mm-hmm. right? I could easily like go over the speed bump, but I mm-hmm. want to notice that speed bump, the first moment of resistance. I can usually over time oh, look, as I'm pulling their arm across their body, their actually shoulder blade isn't moving very much. Mm. Let's go investigate how the shoulder blade might move more or in a different way. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, look, their ribs aren't really moving. Let's do, instead of just like trying to yank it across, Mm -hmm. I go back and I take my time. Mm. And as you said, like sometimes you're just doing such minimal movement in Feldenkrais. You don't feel like you've done much. Then at the end, all of a sudden you're like, oh, my I can breathe now. Open. Yeah. <laughs> I can breathe. My ribs are moving. Like all these things yeah, happen yeah. because we're reducing the amount of resistance mm-hmm. that the person puts, right? Like if you're yanking mm-hmm. someone's arm across them, there's part of them that is going to resist it mm-hmm. because it, it's a little uncomfortable, even if, or their, you know, their nervous system with the stretch reflex, which makes our muscles contract mm-hmm. when we feel any kind of, um, you know, danger or just kind of concern, the muscles will contract a little bit. So mm-hmm. we're trying to stay away from triggering those defense mechanisms and just say, see, this is easy. See, this is easy. <laughs> see, this is easy. Oh, they're all easy together. And all yeah. of a sudden we have range of motion. 
So beautiful. So there's a gentleness to it. Yeah, there's that gentleness. And uh, I just feel like there's so much, you know, so much wisdom there for us in other areas of life, right? And especially that note about patience and not rushing. And, I, you know, I, I think time and we're, we're so used to, I think, by, I don't know, maybe the business world, you know, or the way even a lot of our education is is programmed to prioritize speed. And, uh, you know, in so many relationships, I feel like that interferes. You know, sometimes we don't have time, right? So reality is sometimes we don't. But often it's not a lot of extra time, you know, in the meeting or the conversation that would make a difference. And just to retrain ourselves potentially to slow down a little bit and see what else might be there, employ, you know, our ability to follow before we lead. I think there's just so many places that I could make a huge difference. Daniel, I love your descriptions, both of, you know, contact improvisation and the Feldenkrais modality and how much it has to teach us about leading and following, trust building and listening. I wonder if you were to offer listeners a pro tip from either one of these forms, you know, that they might be able to carry into their everyday life, right? Their felt experience of, of life on either like the leading side, the following side, what might you offer? So one of the other things that I do, in addition to these things, is I'm on faculty at a university dance department. So I am in lots of meetings, and there's lots of bureaucracy, and there's lots of there's lots of levels of people leading and following. And for me, the the in within our dance department, one of the things that I think works really well is to acknowledge both are felt sense. Like we start every faculty meeting with like a grounding exercise. Mm, nice. We, so nice. We, it, it could be a, something that might be more meditative, like a meditation, but it's often a little movement practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, and it's super simple. It's like two minutes. Mm-hmm. And I think like whether you're leading or following, if you can stay, keep some awareness on your physical sense, mm-hmm. that will often tell you so much about what's happening in the moment. You know, we we often will recognize, like, we'll say, oh, oh my shoulder's tight. I'm feeling tension. Mm-hmm. It's often not the reverse. Oh, I feel tense. Look, I'm tensing my, sh- or I'm tensing my shoulders, right? We, we often notice our, our mental and emotional state through physical cues. Mm-hmm. And whatever role we're in, in any kind of context, if we can keep some awareness on how our body is responding, are we clenching up? Are we slouching? Are we, you know, constantly fidgeting? Mm -hmm. Um, That gives us so much information about what's happening in the moment. And, and maybe there's a shift that needs to happen, or maybe we're noticing like we're just sitting really solid and feel really, like good in our bodies. And that can tell us something as well. Um, I think there's great wisdom in attending to our physical state that, you know, when we're sitting at a computer for six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours a day, it's, it's easy to get disembodied or separated. So, yeah. So I think that's the, for me, the thing that I would offer. And, you know, I notice like when I'm in other meetings and people are just like rushing right in to get to everything mm-hmm. that there's just a, sometimes it's, it takes longer for everyone to really arrive in the meeting. 
and be present and be contributing um, than say in our, when you just take a moment to like, oh, here's my body, here's my breath, here's my physical state right now. Mm-hmm. And, and now let's kind of go into the work, whatever the work is. Right. And, yeah. you know, and certainly sometimes in our meetings, the work is pretty tedious. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're like arguing about something or something <laughs> like that, but, um, or trying to rewrite curriculum or whatever it is that can get just kind of a little heady and stuff like that. But the body is often our, our key to if something is working in the moment or not. Yes. Thank you for that reminder. I totally agree, of course, and I know I definitely need to take body breaks throughout the day to keep myself feeling like I'm uh, able to, you know, engage in various types of work uh, effectively. Um, And I'm aware that so many of us work in a way that puts us almost entirely in our thinking brain for so much of the day that we may sometimes forget that we have this whole other apparatus that not only requires care, but is truly an instrument, right? The body is truly this instrument that senses the world, makes meaning of the world around us, and then informs what we know, how we think even. So I wonder if you are seeing any correlations between the mind-body relationship and the leading and following relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And as you were talking, the thing I thought of was like, often we we think of as like our our mind as leading, mm-hmm. right? And, our, and often it is. Um, and the body is kind of following along or doing what the mind wants or what have you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what happens if we flip that mm-hmm. and let the body lead the mind some yeah. and see what might come of that? as a dancer and somatic practitioner, like the body and movement is really important to me. And I often think of actually we have the body, we have the mind, but movement is where mm. everything gets integrated. Mm. Right. Um, yes. It's, yes. It, we think of these things as a duality, but they're, they're really kind of interweaved with one another. And we see these things manifest in the world through movement. Such a beautiful point to end on. Thank you. And I just love the question, can I let my mind follow my body sometimes and perhaps have an exchange of roles there throughout the day or whenever I need it? It it sounds so relaxing to me, you know, so I encourage listeners to play with this idea themselves. You know, sometimes think, even though we're so trained to think about leadership as being successful, I find it exhausting, you know, to put myself in the leader mode all the time. And so just being able to follow, even within myself, is so replenishing. And uh, just be be curious if any listeners play with that. Please, you know, let me know how it goes for you. Daniel, I want to ask you, before we finish, to speak about your podcast and put a little plug here for the interview that Daniel recorded with me several weeks ago for his podcast, Act, React, so you can hear us switch roles. But Uh, Why don't you tell us a little about your goals with that podcast project and where listeners can find it? Sure. I I, I talk about Act React as being kind of an occasional podcast. Um, (laughs) And I've got a couple um, episodes coming out now, and it really focuses on improvisation. Mm 
um, through conversations with remarkable artists like yourself. And um, I've been doing it for a while now, and there's a real range of artists from dancers to musicians to theater folk and um, to a DJ. And it's a wide range of forms from more classical forms to more contemporary forms. And we really just talk about improvisation and how it shows up in one's art making and in one's life. And it's, it's definitely a super pleasurable thing that I do that just kind of reinforces to me again and again how powerful improvisation is across mediums and across different contexts. So they can find it, those the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Um, it's also on my website danielburkholder.com. Um, and also recently, I've also been posting the interviews to YouTube. There's a YouTube channel for Act React. Um, if you want to see, see the people talking as you're listening. Wonderful. I personally can't wait to listen to more episodes of your podcast. As listeners know, I use the terms leading and following to describe improvisation as it manifests in all aspects of life. And so if you enjoy this podcast, you may likely enjoy Act React as well. I encourage you to check it out. Daniel, a real pleasure. Thank you again for being here. And I look forward to our next conversation. That sounds wonderful. Thanks so much. You have been listening to the Lead and Follow podcast. Special thanks to Glover Gill for composing our music. And thank you to all of our subscribers. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show with a paid subscription. And if your team or organization is interested in followership training, please reach out anytime. I'd love to help.